1: And we have spoken to CEO at the Grattan Institute, Danielle Wood, quite a few times over the years about the gender balance of our parliaments and policies that affect the lives of women. We've also taken a spot poll of women in economic portfolios, which tend to be the pathway to the very senior levels of leadership in federal and state governments. The new federal parliament seems to be a leap forward in representation, uh, not only for women, we also have a record number of First Nations voices and Asian Australians and independents as well. But how big is the leadership? we have just taken. Danielle, it's wonderful to have you on the show once again. Welcome.
0: Thanks for having me, Dylan.
1: And so first up, what is your takeaway from the new parliament that we have before us?
0: Uh, well, it is a, a lot more um, diverse <laughs> than, than the ways you've just mentioned. Um, so um, more women and particularly more women in cabinet positions than we've never seen before. Um, you pointed to an increase in um, First Nations representatives, which is incredibly Exciting, I think also um, more generally um, people from culturally diverse backgrounds are represented at levels we haven't seen before. Uh, and, of course, it looks a bit different in that we've got a big, a bigger crossbench mm. as well. Um, so even though Labor was successful in, in getting the majority of seats at 77, uh, we now have uh, a sizable crossbench of, of Greens and, and independents, which, um, you know, I think may well change the way in which some of the kind of aspects of parliamentary debate and, and discussion work. So I think it is actually it's quite um exciting to see something that looks Different to what we're used to,
1: absolutely. And I mean, you know, hopefully that flows through to a change in the culture of Parliament as well, because that's been spoken about at length, um, you know, in, in the previous um, previous term of government. But what does this mean, I suppose, for, for policy making? One issue that the Grattan Institute had talked a lot about is is childcare, and that was a major pitch that Labor took to the election. What do you make of, of what we might see in that space? I suppose in terms of you know enabling more women into the workforce, but also bringing broader economic benefits and, and productivity as well,
0: yeah. Look, I think I mean, Labor has clearly put that as one of the key policies that they put forward at the election, which was really about um, reducing the high out-of-pocket costs for childcare, which particularly impact people um, when they've got kids of before school ages. And, and what we see is that those you know those costs, which are really high at the moment by international standards, are a big barrier to to mainly women, um, sometimes men, but mainly women participating in the workforce. And in a world where we've got um, labour shortages, really low unemployment, uh, in a world where we've got cost-of-living pressures, um, it, it's actually you know, doing something about this. It kills a lot of birds mm. <laughs> with the, with the one stone. Um, so I know Labour are very serious about it. They've, um, their policy will come into effect uh, next July, so July 2023. Uh, And then they're talking about actually a much more fundamental reform of the system, which is moving to universal, low-cost care for everyone. Um, That is something that you don't do overnight. That would be something that was introduced over a number of years. Uh, But certainly the indication is that they are taking that commitment seriously. And I suspect, you know, this term, what we'll be seeing them doing is kind of putting in place um, all the things that you would need to make that a reality.
1: And I suppose, how do you view those sorts of, of, of policy changes in dealing with with issues that you know take some time to, to rectify and to see some of the benefits start to, to flow through? Given that we've got you know some really immediate, short-term challenges at the moment with high inflation and you know historically low wage growth over the years as well, what should be the balance between you know kind of short-term relief um, without <laughs> exacerbating um, in, inflation in the in the form of you know tax cuts and, and that sort of thing, while also so putting in place some longer term reforms that can deliver benefits you know, in, in the years to come.
0: Yeah, it's a very big challenge, and it's a challenge for any government. We only have three-year terms at a federal level, yeah. so um, often the temptation is to just focus on those short-term things. Because, as you say, you know, you could put a lot of policy energy, political capital, into doing long-term reforms, which, by definition, are hard, uh, and, and you don't even really see the benefits within the, the term. Um, but you know, I think it's absolutely crucial that we do do some of these long-term things. You don't want to take on too many. There's a limit to what governments can do, but picking off a couple like, um, you know, changing, really reforming the early childhood um, sector, I think is important. Um, but, you know, they, they will also need to respond to the short term. As you point out, um, there are some pretty um, sizable challenges with inflationary pressures. Um, the real challenge, though, is there's not that much governments Can do that will make a difference Um, they really should not kind of pump in a lot of stimulus in the economy because that makes the problem worse Uh, and you know unfortunately that's what the the previous budget did uh, and that's kind of exacerbating the challenge at the moment Um, they may be able to do some targeted things around cost of living support but it really you know to the extent they do it, um, I would argue it's got to be focused on, on the most vulnerable. So really, you know, people on welfare payments or very low incomes. Um, if you try and do something much more across the board, you actually risk making the problem even larger in the long term.
1: Yeah, and the government has made a submission to the Fair Work Commission to rise the, the minimum uh, minimum rate um, by 5.1% to kind of align with, with inflation, I suppose. And, you know, as you say, there's a limit to what government can actually do in this space, but that's something I suppose that they would like to see. They're also holding a job summit later in the year as well. I mean, what's your sense of, of the extent to which they're they're able or signalling a straddling, I suppose, of these issues by delivering what's needed to those most vulnerable um, while not creating bigger problems for themselves through things like, you know, tax cuts, which are, you know, in some cases already built in?
0: Yeah, so um, on the on the wages front, um, ultimately the decision around the minimum wage is made by the Fair Work Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, what the uh, government has done is made the submission, as you point out, arguing that wages should keep pace um, with inflation for those on minimum wage. Um, that, you know, will presumably factor into the decision of the Commission, but ultimately the, the Commission is independent and, and will make a call. But, look, I would be very surprised um, if we didn't see... Um, a higher increase in the, the minimum wage to reflect um, the fact that, that prices are rising much more quickly than, than we've been become accustomed to in the past decade. So I think that, um, you know, is an important thing that governments can do. Um, Job Summit is interesting. I mean, the real challenge, I think, is we have um, a number of sectors that are kind of government-funded sectors where wages... Um, been really low for a long time. Um, so we've got the aged care workers that have a Fair Work Commission case uh, at the moment. And I think it's really important that the government signal that they would support a, a wage rise there. Um, you know, frankly, we, we're going to need to see those wages increase if we're going to be able to attract and retain the staff that we need to deal um, with growing demand in the sector. Uh, and the same arguments apply to, to child care workers as well. Um, you know, incredibly um, important... Um, valuable work that's historically been very, very unrewarded Uh, and we face challenges with with shortages of key staff so I think those are really the areas where the kind of activity on wages has got to focus
1: and, I mean, in terms of the, the, the need, I suppose, to increase productivity, which many have sort of pointed to as what needs to be an emphasis going forward with the levers that the government has at its disposal. I mean, you know, there's skill shortages across certain industries. There's, there's talk about what can be done in the education space and that kind of thing. Do you see real potential there for the government to increase productivity by investing in, in particular sectors of education uh, in order to, to boost productivity going forward?
0: Yeah, so I think, um, you know, when you talk about productivity, uh, education is absolutely crucial, you know, investing in the human capital of the population uh, to kind of be able to be ready for the jobs of the future is absolutely critical. So um, the, the more immediate things you can do are on the skills front. Um, so looking at the areas where there are shortages of workers and making sure that um, people are able to get training in those areas and the Labor government has talked about um, fee-free vet um, places uh, in some of those skill shortage areas. Um, so those are all important and immediate Um, things that that governments can do. Um, The longer-term challenge with education um, starts much earlier. Um, So, yes, it's early childhood, it's primary school, it's secondary school. Um, Those are areas where Australian outcomes have actually been going backwards. Mm. Um, So kids are, uh, you know, falling behind in areas like maths and English um, where students at the same level were 20 years ago, which is pretty shocking, I think, you know. So there, I think we need to do much more to improve the education system and the education that our children are getting in those crucial years because that's then what's going to set them up um, and set, set Australia up in, in the coming decades. So that is, you know, another, area, I think, where you're talking long-term reform, long-term vision, but it's absolutely crucial for the, the ongoing economic success and social success of our country.
1: Speaking with Danielle Wood, CEO of the Grattan Institute, about a whole range of really big picture issues um, that this government, this new government, um, is grappling with currently some, you know, short-term problems, but also many long-term challenges as well. We've heard a lot, Danielle, from Treasurer Jim Chalmers about the, the mess that this government as, has inherited, um, the mess of a budget, and that there were things that they've since discovered um, you know, as they've taken government that weren't really aware of beforehand. I mean, in some ways, that's a convenient narrative for an incoming government that has a lot of uh, difficult things to deal with. What's your sense of, of this kind of rhetoric we're hearing from Jim Chalmers, um, I suppose, in relation to the, the real challenges that they have to deal with?
0: Uh, so you're right, and it is partly convenient, and it is a little bit uh, something that we see every time when mm. there is a change of government, as everyone says, oh, gosh, <laughs> things are so much worse than, than we thought. Um, but at the same time, there's, there, there is an element of truth in it, that there is a pretty unique set of challenges that they've inherited. So we've already talked about the sort of um, price pressures in inflation um, feeding into that as some of the energy market <laughs> challenges and um issues with very high prices of gas, which is flowing through and affecting um, businesses and will ultimately affect households. Uh, and then there's the budget situation, which is where they've really sort of said things might be even worse than we already knew. So what we knew is that the government was coming in. Gross debt is expected to hit a trillion dollars in coming years. Uh, And and really what Jim Chalmers is saying is that the numbers might be even worse than that. Um, And I think, um, frankly, that's probably a credible um, (laughs) claim. There was was certainly some assumptions that um, looked a little optimistic that were supporting the government's numbers. Um, So what that means is that um, Labor is going to face some pretty significant fiscal challenges over the coming years. Um, They will not be able to do um, all the spending they might like to do in certain areas. Um, They've committed to things like the Stage 3 income tax cuts, which are very big and due to come into effect in in 2024-25. They've committed not to increasing taxes in other areas. Um, So they've they've left themselves actually in in a quite difficult, position in that they're not going to have um, there's not you know so many obvious areas where they're going to be able to start that job of repairing the budget bottom line.
1: It's interesting I suppose isn't it because there's a lot of criticism of the kind of small target strategy Labor took into the election and that might hold them back in some ways um, on some of these big picture issues but I mean I'm sure all of this is keeping you super busy over there at the Grattan Institute Danielle it's um, always a real pleasure to have you on the show and look forward to catching up with you again soon.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for having
1: me, Dylan. Lovely the chat. Cheers. Danielle Wood there, the CEO of the Grattan Institute, talking about the suppose, economic headwinds that the government is grappling with at the moment, touching on a whole range of issues there and um, commencing, I suppose, with the much more diverse parliament we have as well. Triple R
0: on FM, digital, online and via the app.
1: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Since the federal election, a major focus of the new government has been on the Pacific. Foreign Minister Penny Wong has spent the last couple of weeks visiting a host of Pacific island nations, at the same time her counterpart in China, Wang Yi, has been on a whirlwind tour forging numerous bilateral agreements, uh, but falling short in their efforts to establish a region-wide deal, covering things like economic engagement and policing, to name just a few. So what does this all mean for the region as Australia seeks to recast its relationship with the Pacific? Dr George Carter is a research fellow at the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, He's also the director of the ANU Pacific Institute, and joins me now on the line. George, pleasure to have you on Triple R. Welcome. Thank you very
2: much for having me on your
1: show. And so, how significant is it that the Pacific has been such a focus of this new government in Australia?
2: Um, It's it's sending the clear signals and uh, optimism around the Pacific. You know, for the last uh, nine years with the coalition government, uh, we saw in uh, two and again in 2008, the announcement of the step-up. It was an acknowledgement by Australia that it needs to increase its engagement, uh, especially in the area of uh, security and economic integration. However, one that was missing, and we see it with the new Labour government, is this openness to have a dialogue and to work with the Pacific in the area of climate change. So under the last coalition government, it was a clear uh, there was a work around uh, climate adaptation, but here we see through the statements by Penny Wong a new era of engagement, whereby they like uh, they hope to see Australia and Pacific Islands as well as regionalism work together in international advocacy for climate action. And this is something new, is claiming uh, optimism uh, around the region, but also to the potential of what this deep relationship could. Uh,
1: uh, especially in the coming years under Labor. Yeah, and so as you've observed, you know Penny Wong jet, jetting around to, to different countries in the region and, and forging a number of, um, of, of agreements. What have you kind of taken away from how particular leaders in the Pacific have responded to the change of government and, and Minister Wong specifically?
2: Mm, uh, very favourable. Uh, we saw in the first visit with Prime Minister Bainimarama of. Um, it was a one but I think to the three day visit that we saw in the previous week uh, last week with the visit to Samoa especially during the time of its independence celebration and again to the kingdom of Tonga. what we see here is uh, not like unlike um, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi which is a meeting for eight hours or an overnight uh, You uh, and also an announcement of projects yes very much uh so, Penny Wong's visit is uh, one uh, announcement uh, of new projects, but there's a deeper focus on the relationship, um, especially the one on one with leaders. And we saw that in the conference between uh, the new Prime Minister of Samoa and first female Prime Minister uh, for the Pacific, not a President, but a Prime Minister, uh, Honorable Fiamie um, Mataafa. Mm. Um, in a very uh, audio um, uh, and, uh, press conference that also uh, was set out in a different tone, very uh, calm atmosphere, there was no anxiety, they were not, you know, not sharing a podium, they were uh, having a conversation with the media. And it sets a new tone on what we expect to see in the coming years.
1: Yeah, it's such interesting insights, I think. And I, I mean, you know, a lot of the, the coverage of the Pacific, unfortunately, is framed through the kind of geopolitical, geostrategic lens of, you know, Australia trying to kind of shut out China from the region and China's ambitions in the region. But I suppose looking at the number of bilateral agreements that China has forged within individual countries, but also, you know, falling short of that region-wide pact, how do you reflect on on that situation and, and how particular Pacific leaders and, and countries have, I suppose, negotiated these um, representations from both China and Australia at the current point in time?
2: Absolutely. Let's just focus on the Chinese um, um, packages that have been rolled up. These are nothing new uh, for those of us who have followed the uh, relationship between China and the individual countries. And these were... an uh, projects that were discussed two, three years, even before COVID. Um, but what you have here is a high level visit and an opportunity for China to um, uh, sort of reaffirm or re highlight some of these um, uh, special uh, programs with the Pacific. Um, and in a way, this is the first time for China to have a symmetry in terms of uh, moving. Into Ireland. Uh, we had similar um, visits like this by um, Secretary uh, Hillary Clinton back in 2012, when America was uh, moving back into what they pivot to the Pacific. So in a way, this is that uh, reaffirmation by China that uh, the Pacific, while they say it's not a part of their grand strategy, is does matter and remain important to Beijing. And this is the first time you have an island. Home. A visit from uh, China, uh, Chinese officials. Yes, in the past there have been uh, regional discussions in China or in Fiji, but this is the first time. It's also the first time it's trying to attempt to have a regional um, operation. Well, this is something new. Um, it's uh, The regional order has always been uh, with uh, the West, especially with New Zealand and Australia being a part of it. So it's vitally important that anyone first visit, not just affirming her bilateral uh, engagement and and, uh, relationship with Fiji, but very much affirming the regional order uh, through the Pacific Island Forum. And we see leaders responding to how China has tried to engage in that space, that uh, of the many values that is uh, important to the Pacific in terms of Pacific regionalism, consensus uh, is uh, important. It was articulated. Pacific way when it was discussed in the 1970s. It's also articulated in the Blue Pacific, which is the current regional uh, identity or uh, um, uh, sort of policy that brings together regional cooperation. And we saw leaders affirming that, that in terms of consensus, it's vitally important. It means that it's not voting. Mm -hmm. Rather, when one country says it's uncomfortable, it's the whole region that's So that's something that China has has, and I hope has learned in terms of how this operates. uh, that uh, it's important to bring everyone along rather than one by one uh, trying to stitch a regional cooperation from there, whether you bring everyone along before Uh, sort of making any formal announcements.
1: And from what you've seen so far of of, of Penny Wong, particularly in the Pacific, do you have the sense that that she, and I suppose the Australian government more broadly, has a a nuanced sense of the the need to develop those proper relationships and, you know, achieve a level of consensus and and acknowledging and respecting those sort of long-standing customs, I suppose, that reflect the region's cultural diversity and and ties among different groups? I know
2: that because Australia... Uh, was a part of this construction of Pacific identity in the 1970s when it was part of one of the founding countries in the establishment of the Pacific Island Forum and has remained a consistent part uh, both uh, through the dialogue but also in terms of financially supporting Pacific regionalism and it continues to be one of that uh, main areas of uh, Australian engagement and so uh, it has been But what we see differently uh, now under the Labour government, uh, yes, we hear in the rhetoric and see in the speeches uh, the need to uh, be in listening mode, and that is fine. But it goes beyond that. Uh, And this is what uh, not only uh, academics, commentators, but also we think that uh, um, from the region will be... um, is how much uh, um, Australia listens, or how much uh, Penny Wong listens into uh, some of these issues. And part of that is uh, comes through in terms of the actual uh, policy. Now we see a continuation in the area of economic and security integration. Uh, but What we're all looking for towards is uh, what's been said around uh, uh, international engagement, uh, advocacy, and climate change. Um, The news of a uh, Pacific um, and Australia-hosted conference of the parties for UNSCC will bring about not only great um, uh, international ambition, but also ambition here in Australia. And that's something that uh, many are looking forward to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Speaking with Dr. George Carter, Director of the Pacific Institute over at the Australian National University. And, I mean, there's been a lot spoken about Australia's attempts, I suppose, to, you know, head off um, Chinese influence in the region. What's your sense of whether Australia is, is justified or right in being concerned about China's ambitions in the Pacific? Um, you
2: know, it, each uh, it's important that uh, each... Country or wherever you stand from, you're able to openly um, discuss but also articulate uh, that perspective. Now, here in yeah, Australia, it's quite mixed uh, in terms of, and that's part of their uh, Australia's economic but also uh, security cooperation uh, um, and also uh, the past with uh, China. It is also fair to say that of. Uh, the concerns uh, and the cautious approach uh, from um, Australia is based around that experience through cyber attacks uh, that has um, uh, been part of the uh, um, everyday life here. In Australia. And it's important that that is articulated. Um, and it's also important for people that there is a, a section in society that will also articulate this through anxiety. Um, but it's important that uh, while you. That anxious, and one side that says a cautious approach uh, towards um, uh, China. Uh, that this is also articulated with respect in regards to the Pacific, in terms of not making assumptions that the whole region is thinking the same in terms of it articulates uh, in, in terms of its response to China. Yeah. The American public needs to be educated in how China engages differently in the Pacific, uh, especially amongst islands. There are some islands which are four states that uh, recognize Taiwan and that the other ten islands recognize Beijing. So different approaches there, but they're all part of the Pacific Island Forum. It's important also to understand there is not just a first wave of uh, uh, Chinese immigrants, but also a population of third and fourth generation Chinese which uh, uh, have lived and been part Uh, um, Pacific society. So, uh, while it's important, uh, and I think uh, the various different uh, camps uh, in Australia, which have sort of, uh, one says a cautious approach, one's a anxious, and while others may encourage engagement with China, that this is not assumed on uh, the Pacific, but rather that we also take our time here in Australia to be educated on the different perspectives and the approach. not only countries but individual businesses and even civil society respond to uh, uh, Chinese engagement in the Pacific.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I mean, you mentioned the significance of of you know this sort of new era, I suppose, of of diploma, Australia's diplomacy with a range of different different peoples and, and and countries in the Pacific in relation to climate change, and there is a um, sort of hopes, I suppose, to to host a UN climate summit here in the region. How significant is that for sort of properly putting on the world stage, I suppose, the very real and present dangers that climate change poses to to so many people and communities in the Pacific?
2: It's not only in the Pacific, it's also here in Australia. Um, Climate change, climate impacts um, is dangerous. Uh, uh, And these societies as well as countries are vulnerable, uh, you know, and it's a threat Societies. In the Pacific, uh, many many islands, like uh, in uh, local atoll nations, like Tuvalu, Kiribati, and Marshall Islands, uh, it's asserted that this climate crisis is an existential threat uh, to uh, not only the livelihoods, well-being, but also the security of um, of these people. Um, and it's important that uh, we also take into account that that we share the same climatic region, we share the same ocean, so that from these areas uh, are shared amongst um, uh, uh, Australia, but also individual Pacific countries. And so having a COP, since signals not only internationally, but uh, but also domestically, Australia, but domestically also in, in individual Pacific island countries, we can only see the example of UK in terms of how it's hosted um, the last Glasgow. It wasn't just about leaders working with other uh, of powers or leaders like China and United States, but also major uh, polluting countries, to cut emissions and greater climate action. But it was also an uh, internal uh, change uh, in the UK. We saw uh, in terms of low-carbon transition. We see the public engaged in dialogue. Uh, we saw the public participate in cutting uh, in individual actions, cutting down emissions. We saw an increase in uh, climate education, but we also saw an increase in uh, UK partnerships globally, and we foresee that in terms of Australia. Uh, we will not only uh, see, uh, know and, uh, uh, I guess, explore um, vulnerability. In the pacific but also how these individual states and societies are responding through technology but also through traditional knowledge in responding to current impacts of climate change so it is also positive not only globally in terms of uh, what is happening and what we can do as a uh, global uh, uh, planet earth but also Individually, as countries and, um, and societies, what we can do, sort of how like we can say, what is an Australian authentic approach to climate impacts, or what is a sound more authentic? So we will be able to uh, have platforms to showcase this, uh, to become listeners to other places around uh, the world that are currently also, where we well, all are currently uh, facing uh, uh, these climate impacts, which will only be worse uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, it's been so great to have your insights on the show this morning, Um, George. Thanks so much and and enjoy your day. Thank you very much. All the best. Dr. George Carter there, Research Fellow at the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs and he's also Director of the ANU Pacific Institute, talking about the real emphasis from the new government on the Pacific and Penny Wong's visits over there and some of the agreements that have been brokered...
3: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: Spoken a lot on the show this morning about what this new parliament might um, hold, I suppose, with regard to economic management, the Pacific and climate. But what of whistleblowers? Will we see any changes on this front? We've got a couple of very high profile cases still unresolved, such as that of Bernard Killeary, who will face trial later this year in the ACT Supreme Court as the four year saga continues after being charged with conspiring to release classified or handling classified information about alleged Australian Spying in East Timor, and of course, Julian Assange, who's still in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison, where he's been held since 2019. Journalist Bernard Keane, uh, he's the politics editor over at Crikey. He's one of the most important reporters on whistleblowers and freedom of speech, and joins me now on the line. Welcome, Bernard. Always good to have you on Triple R. G'day. And so, if we start with the case of Bernard Caleri, what do we know about how this government, and particularly, I suppose, new Attorney-General Mark Dreyfuss, uh have said, I suppose, about his plight and, and the pursuit of him for handling this sort of classified information?
3: Well, for much of the time since 2018, when uh, Bernard was prosecuted, um, the, Labor and... and... Mark Griffiths, in particular, who's held the shadow, which held the Attorney general portfolio through at that time, were reasonably quiet about it. There was certainly no support for Bernard Caleri, no objection to the prosecution. Uh, that was only expressed by some backbenchers uh, and, you know, a very small number of backbenchers at that. But as the trials dragged on, Mark Griffiths has been much more vocal about the trial and particularly the conduct of the trial uh, and quite accurately because the conduct of the trial, not by the Director of Public Prosecutions, but by the Attorney-General representatives has been uh, pretty outrageous. So how the trial's proceeded is there's been no trial yet. There's been purely procedural um, uh, activities for the last few years. They've centered around the idea that the Commonwealth wants to prevent any sort of secret, what it deems to be secret um, uh, information um, being produced in the trial in relation to what everyone knows went on, which was the bugging of the Timor Leste cabinet, and nearly all of the judicial or courtroom activity over the last sort of three years has been in relation to Christian Porter and then uh, Michaelia Cash's efforts to impose a, a you know veil of secrecy over um, over the trial you know, to such an extent that even Bernard Kaleri and his defence lawyers would not have been allowed to see the material that was being used um, to prosecute them. So there's been a lot of procedural to and fro about that to such an extent that three magistrates, including the one who is currently hearing the case, David Mossop, in the ACT Supreme Court, have criticised the Commonwealth and its lawyers for their delays and obstructionism in relation to the trial. Um, it's been a marked feature of... Commonwealth conducted this trial, that it has seemingly sought to delay, to drag out, uh, to obfuscate and to make things as difficult uh, for Bernard Colleary in complete breach of, of, of the requirement that the Attorney-General be a model litigant uh, and that the Commonwealth be a model litigant. Um, so um, in reaction to that, Mark Dreyfus has increasingly been critical of it. And in fact, during the election campaign, he specifically described the conduct of the trial by the Commonwealth as an affront to the rule of law. Now, that's a pretty that's pretty hard language, mm. um, but it signals that you know that the conduct of the trial is is regarded as particularly problematic. The other aspect that that Mark Dreyfus has has also been critical of is the apparent lack of a public interest justification for the prosecution in the first place. Now, this is, you know, this is, I I think, the crucial issue. This is a trial that should never have gone ahead in the first place. This is a prosecution that should never have happened. And what Mark Dreyfus has been signalling for at least the last sort of year is that he is not clear what the public interest uh, is in this prosecution.
4: Mm.
3: His approval is required for the conduct of the prosecution. He, therefore, can no bill the prosecution at any stage Um, and that's now really the threshold issue is um, Mark Dreyfus in his new role as the Attorney-General what will Attorney-General's department say to him about the public interest in this prosecution and will that be sufficient for him to decide okay we'll let the prosecution continue or no there's no public interest here Um, I'm going to let this go.
1: That's really interesting to have that potted history because I I recall as well there was very little said from the opposition at the time about the the, the persecution of of Bernard Cleary and Witness Kay and I kind of read into that that perhaps there was tacit agreement that, you know, we don't want um, our bugging and spying operations being made public but from what you say, Bernard it seems like there might have been some kind of a shift where there's a question that the government's willing to engage in as to whether there is a public interest in pursuing Cleary over his involvement in this saga.
3: Yes, that's right. And I think part of that is the change in Labour leadership. So under Bill Shorten, um, there, I think there was a view. Certainly Bill Shorten was, uh, I think, more conservative um, in terms of national security matters. Certainly his advisers were more uh, conservative in terms of national security matters, and I think there was a view within the the, the, the people advising Bill Shorten on national security that you know, Bernard Kaleri and Witness Gay pretty much deserved whatever they got. I think Anthony Albanese has taken a quite a different view. He's on record. He told Crikey that um, uh, back in I think it was 2020 when we had a we did a uh, a podcast with him, a webinar that um, that he thought what was done to Timor Leste was wrong mm. in relation to the bugging. Um, and that's a fairly you know clear statement that you know, this is not just a legal issue but a moral uh, issue as well so I think the change of leadership's been important as well as the um, you know the the, the the extensive sort of dragging out and and Dreyfus has specifically referred to the fact that this is now a trial that's in its fourth year uh, about events that happened 20 years ago yeah. and or the best part of 20 years ago and I think that's actually a that's a potent point to weigh up in this deliberation as well is just what is the public interest in going after um, uh, uh, Bernard Kaleri in relation to this issue, given uh, these events, A, uh, to a large degree on the public record. We know there was bugging. We know why it was done. uh, We know who benefited from it. Um, and it was done an awful long time ago.
1: It's interesting to think about the public interest, you know, balanced against that the public interest in knowing about this bugging, and, and you know, a, as you, you say, who benefited from this? Uh, and, I mean, you know, Alexander Downer was on q and A I I think, last week, repeating the line that governments can't talk about the work of of intelligence services, but it's well documented, and you've, you know, written on this case many, many times over the years that, you know, Downer went on to work for Woodside, and they were one of the main beneficiaries of those gas and oil negotiations. In the piece you've written for Crikey recently, you argue for a Royal Commission, I suppose into this issue broadly of of state capture, I guess, and the the undue power that is held by particularly resource companies into these efforts of Australian governments um, and how they conduct themselves and use their intelligence services. I mean, that's a step further than we've heard anything, um, you know, Mark Dreyfus or Albanese has said at the moment. But do you see any scope for, for grappling with some of those much more insidious forces, I suppose, that underpin some of the ways that our government operates um, on the international stage?
3: Well, there's a couple of issues here. One is the fact that we have, uh, like other, our Western allies, uh, our intelligence agencies engage in commercial espionage. Um, now, the, the term of art that's used in national security legislation is economic. Um, there's a reference to Australia's economic interests and it's viewed as fair game for our buyers to go off and try and gather information that will benefit us economically. What's happened, of course, is that that is defaulted into commercial espionage, which is espionage for the explicit benefit of particular corporations. Uh, one of those corporations, of course, is Woodside, um, a fossil fuel giant with extensive links uh, across politics, um, this is uh, this is a, a, a company that has no particular pr- political preferences. It's got a former um, uh, a former uh, coalition minister on its board. It's got a former Labour state minister on its board. It generously donates to both sides of politics. It employs staffers from both sides and politicians uh, from both sides of politics. So, you know, this is this is a. A classic example of state capture, where a corporation, a large, powerful corporation wields multiple mechanisms for of influence in order to secure Uh, favourable policy outcomes, and there's no doubt that Woodside benefited enormously from the CMATS Treaty, as it turned out, as as it was called, which emerged from that tainted and poisoned negotiation process that was undertaken with Australia, of course, having all the advantages of knowing exactly what Timor-Leste's position was. So, yeah, I think there's a a fundamental issue we do need to address about the the role of commercial espionage Mm. by our spy agencies, which... I think really should be illegal. And under some readings of existing legislation is illegal. Um, I'm not sure whether those readings would end up being affirmed by a court. But I think Australians need to know that our spies are not out there protecting our national security. They're actually looking after the interests of the shareholders of Woodside and and other large corporations. And there's the other issue, of course, of the state capture of, of, of our, particularly our federal government, by... Particularly large fossil fuel companies, but extending right across the, um, you know, the, the 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 economy, the undue influence that's wielded by uh, large corporations, and uh, the I think the 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 eagerness of, of either side to really plunge into the issue of state capture, is pretty limited. Australia, you know, Labor has its own issues around state capture with the role, the very very strong role of trade unions that play that. that in in labour, in labour policy making and in the supply of, of labour MPs. So both sides have a lot of stake in, lot at stake in, in the issue of state capture and uh, probably not very much interest in pursuing it.
1: That voice you can hear is Crikey's politics editor Bernard Keane, talking about the new government's approach to um, the, the prosecution of, of Bernard Kaliri, the lawyer representing Witness K, and this is all surrounding his involvement in handling uh, classified information, um, you know, spying essentially that was that was undergone by Australian intelligence forces in East Timor a couple of decades ago. And I suppose on that issue of, of whistleblowers and freedom of speech, another very high profile case that many are, are waiting to see. How the government will, will respond to is, is that of Julian Assange. He's set to discover his fate in, in the coming weeks when the UK's Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is due to decide on whether to order his extradition to the US um, you know, as per instruction by the British courts. The new government here in Australia has suggested they'd like him to be freed, but have you seen any signs yet that they might be engaging with the UK and, and US governments on this at all, Bernard?
3: All we've seen, all, all, all we've heard so far is Anthony Albanese saying that, um, uh, well, I, his statement, maybe I'll just describe his statement yeah. rather than try to describe what he meant. Uh, his statement was that not all diplomacy is carried out with a megaphone. And I assume we're meant to take from that that there are beside, behind the scenes and uh, confidential discussions underway between Australia, the US and the UK. You know, our AUKUS partners you know we one should point out yep. about the fate of Julian Assange um, but other than that look Labor has not really deviated markedly from the previous government in its indifference to the fate of uh, an Australian publisher and the fact that he is um, uh, not, not just the Trump administration but the Biden administration are very very keen to get Julian Assange over and jail him for being a journalist and being a publisher and yeah, there are multiple reasons why this should be a deeper front to Australians but you know obviously the threshold one is that um, uh, Julian Assange is an Australian and he has received minimal support from successive governments right from when Bob Carr was foreign minister under the Gillard government through uh, the um, uh, the uh, you know the coalition years and and you know we'll see what happens under this government but we have seen a bit of a pattern over all these years, of people, when they're in opposition, uh, whether it's Julie Bishop or uh, um, when she was in opposition, of saying, yes, i would like to help Julian Assange more than they have, but um, uh, when they actually get into government, suddenly nothing much happens. So, um, you know, I think there is a big question mark over the government's attitude toward, um, toward Julian Assange and that looming decision by Priti
1: Patel. Yeah, and I mean, there's been a cross-parliamentary group of MPs lobbying for Assange's release. And it's been interesting over the years to observe this, because, you know, among them is Barnaby Joyce. This isn't sort of, you know, one side of politics necessarily who are really concerned about his treatment and would like him to be brought to Australian soil. Um, Albanese as well, I understand, is is signatory to the Bring Julian Assange Home campaign petition. So I wonder whether, you know, similarly to what we we're talking about with Bernard Kaliri and perhaps there being um, significant in, in the leader of the ALP at the time. Do you think there could be any new emphasis put on this, given that Albanese has voiced his support for bringing Assange home in the past?
3: Oh, look, I, look, the, the, the Labour under Bill Shorten, I think, was, was much more hostile to, um, uh, to Julian Assange than under Anthony Albanese. So, uh, yeah, again, I think there is a... There's a as people might know, I assume they know Anthony Albanese is from the left of the party. Mm. That has not really manifested itself much in the way of policy um, in the last three years. Obviously, Labor took a very policy light sort of approach to to this election, uh, successfully as it turned out. But I, I think on national security, there is probably a little bit more uh, reflection of a different ide- ideological emphasis, or at least a different, or, or at least greater flexibility. In relation to national security issues, and we saw under Bill Shorten, who was, um, uh, as you would know from the WikiLeaks cables um, released um, over a decade ago, uh, was very very happy to talk to the United States as a as a confidential source, and um, uh, is generally seen as uh, you know being pretty close to the right. The right wing Labor Party's approach to international relations.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we've touched on two very high profile cases, but we know that these issues around whistleblowers and, and freedom of speech have much broader implications as well. So we'll be watching carefully to see what happens in this space. Bernard, it's always great to have you on Triple R. Thanks so much for, for joining us today on, sh- on today's show.
3: No worries, good to talk.
1: Cheers. Bernard Keane is Crikey's politics editor, talking about the plight of Bernard Cleary there, and Julian Assange, what the new government's approach might be to those two cases in particular.
0: Triple. Ah. Uh.
1: Rising Festival is in full swing and Baxter Durie is one of many artists that there is a lot of excitement about. The UK artist and son of new wave legend Ian Durie is performing in Australia and in Melbourne for the very first time at the Forum tomorrow night. Ahead of that, he took some time to have a chat to me early this morning. So Baxter, it's great to have you in the country and on Triple R. You've been in Australia for a few days now. How's your time been so far?
4: Well, you know, untangling the jet lag, you start to have little glimpses of a nice um, society. It's very nice. Uh, Nice uh, bread and and food and and hospitality is amazing. You're so kind of bonkers with um, jet lag, it's quite hard to focus sometimes. But the (laughs) gigs are quite centering and the audiences have been great. So far, all positive.
1: Yeah, I, I heard that you flew direct from London to Darwin. Is that right?
4: Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I can't even remember. Yeah, we went all the way, 17 hours. I've never flown there before, so I can't compare it to the other way of doing it, but it seemed okay. (laughs) They were very nice.
1: Yeah, well, um, you have played in Sydney on Saturday night and then last night in Brisbane. How did those shows go?
4: They went well, I think. I think I was pretty surprised by the amount of people and enthusiasm and the sort of varied crowds that we tend to get. The similar sort of vibe in England we got here um, and it was good. It was actually really good. It was a surprise. I mean, in my cynical outlook, I thought we'd be in a small outpost with about twenty people. Um, <laughs> uh, I couldn't was quite surprised that, you know, your records could reach right to the other side of the corner of the earth. And um it was good, it was really good.
1: Well, there's so much excitement to have you playing in Melbourne. So tomorrow night, you're playing at the Forum Theatre, which, uh, you know, is a very sort of large grand venue in Melbourne, a lot of people's favourite sort of gig going places in town. But even though you are in Melbourne performing for the first time, you've got a connection to this city. Madeline Hart, the female vocals we hear on quite a few of your tracks is initially from Melbourne. How did you two start collaborating?
4: I can't remember right in how we got introduced, but we just did a while ago, years ago, and we just kind of became friends, and ever since then it's been pretty effortless. And we've had, you know, many, many travelling gig experiences. You know, we're pretty, we're like family, really. So um, yeah, I can't. I I think she's planning to move back actually, which is not a surprise. So um, it's quite. This is quite
1: significant for her to come and do these gigs. Yeah. So does that mean you've got a bit of a local tour guide then when you're in town?
4: Yeah. Well, our <laughs> family all were all there, and they came to Sydney actually, and they're very one lovely family. So it's been really nice actually. It kind of it, that's nice to have that association with somewhere because you get a kind of a sense that you're you're seeing it properly. if You see what I mean? You're being you kind of. I can. I can. I've heard so many stories about Melbourne, and I feel like I know it. <laughs>
1: Well, you, you have spoken about your sort of experience over the last two years because Night Chances, you know, it feels like it came out yesterday, but that was at the start of lockdown really in, in 2020 when that album emerged, your sort of last full-length um, studio record that you released. And you've spoken about uh, sort of getting into some, I suppose, different artists over that time, um, being influenced by your son Cosmo, the likes of Frank Ocean, Tyler, the creator, Kendrick Lamar. Have you found that those types of artists have started to kind of weave their way into your songwriting at all?
4: Yeah, I mean, invisibly, I think you got to be careful of not being too obvious because it's not misappropriation, but you sort of sound a bit stranded culturally if you think you you have a right to adopt a kind of... A lot of that music is born from an experience that I don't relate to because I'm not a black person from America. So mm. you've got to be careful, to some extent, not to say any music owned by anyone but you know there are elements of its creative side more creative side of the music which i'm so impressed by and i think it makes most other forms of music sound pretty provincial compared to those guys Uh probably making the most interesting music i can i know of
1: And often there's really beautiful production accompanying their tracks as well, because it's the lyrics and the songwriting often that really, you know, sort of underpins their approach. Um, But I wonder about the the production on uh, the track that you released coming out with your, your compilation from last year, Mr. Maserati. D.O.A. was the sort of new single to appear on that. That one you wrote in collaboration with your son and have said that this is the, the beginning of something. So what does that mean? I mean, more collaborations with your son to come or, or a bit of a different approach to songwriting?
4: Well, you can't really control him. He's a random variable. He does his do own thing, <laughs> which is a good thing. He's, got, he's not impressed by much. So, um, but I think it's just always good to choose a, a, a kind of new course um, just to keep your head uh, interested. Otherwise, you just sort of dry up and become a kind of good old boy singing the old traditional songs. And that is a depressing peninsula to be in. You mustn't, um, I just think you keep, I'm, I can afford to sort of do what I want. And to some extent, you wonder if it will sound any different to anyone else. But as long as I'm interested... Um, that's what's important, I think.
1: And how does... does Do you know he feels about collaborating with you? Because obviously, you know, a lot's been spoken about you kind of, you know, coming in the shadow of your, your father in some ways and came to music, I suppose, a little bit later. But is there a sense at all of, of any pressure that he feels to, to be a musician? No, I
4: think he's very... Uh, I don't think he even wants to be a musician, to be honest. Um, I think he's very certain about, you know, there's not the same pressures. There's a different, you know, we're all different generation. Different generations present different types of problems, but that's definitely not one of his.
1: Yeah, And what's it like getting out and doing live shows for the first time in a while? Because, I mean, during lockdown, you had a book to write and that came out a short time ago and you've been sort of on the, you know, circuit for for book launches. But getting out in front of a live audience playing music, I imagine is quite a different experience. How's it been for you sort of re-emerging into that live gig space?
4: Um, I find it quite, you know, I sort of... um... It's not. I am. I, I didn't do anything. It made me more kind of not confident. But I just don't worry about things so much. So, just get on with it more. Yeah. Stop sort of thinking. Just sort of, there's a big, a kind of despairing moment. You sit on your own. You think, well, not really much to worry about? Really, is there? <laughs> so it's very simple. I just thought, let's just get on with it. And what it, what it did for me, the pandemic, is it just. It made me open up my world to doing lots of different things as opposed to being stuck, and I think that, that's quite satisfying. So I sort of open up my enterprises, and, that, and that's good, actually, because I find being in one form of creativity a bit
1: claustrophobic. Yeah, and I was wondering too, I suppose, about the the track that you released from 2021, Baxter, These Are My Friends, with Fred again. It's been really nice having a few singles from you, but, I mean, are you doing any of those sorts of one-off uh, collaborations at the moment?
4: No, I don't know, not a plan, no. I should concentrate. I've got a few other things I've got to do and then I should concentrate on on actually making the new album. Um, and I just spent my time doing that in a way I wanted, you know, like, I didn't want to just pile into the same old thing so i've paused for a moment just to sort of try and do something a bit different but that's a bit more difficult than you think because you've got to change your skill set i can i can produce endless endless types of the same music that i've already done but to do something different and make it work and feel natural is is more tricky than you think so that's what i'm doing
1: yeah, and so what can we expect from your show tomorrow night at the Forum? Is it kind of a career-spanning set or honing in on some of the more recent stuff you've released?
4: It's a combination. It's just, I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, really it sounds like a... It's just a bunch of songs that are pleasant to play and sort of fit into a sequence. So it's a bit of everything, you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't, it doesn't have any more deeper significance than that, but I, you know, I quite like just getting right through it. Not, um, not, uh, not thinking about it too much.
1: Yeah, well, I'll be there along with many others at the forum. Very much looking forward to seeing you doing your thing in Melbourne town. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you this morning. You've got a, a plane to catch, so, um, so best of luck with that and enjoy your time in Melbourne. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect hit us up via the Triple R website.